Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Heyo, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Let me hear you say Ayo. <laughs> yeah. A That's boom, the... boom. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> we have we have stories to tell these nice people. This is not a platform for you to just make mouth sounds. Santosh, a podcast is nothing but a platform for us to make mouth sounds. <laughs> You know what? I take it back. As soon as that mouth sound left my mouth, <laughs> my ear holes recognized that it was wrong. So from our mouth sounds to your ear holes this <laughs> week, it's once again time for an alternate week. And even though in the before times I would have been at <laughs> Comic-Con, yeah, <laughs> here I am slaving away through medical journals to bring our alternate week update to you. That's right, listening audience. Mm. In one of our last two episodes of the season, Sing it's it. time for oh, yeah. another oh. Journal Club! Yay! <laughs> I'd like to thank all of you listeners who decided to keep your um, listening device on after hearing the words from our mouth sounds to your ear holes and not being instantly disgusted and throwing your phone down in a fit of rage. <laughs> but the rest of this, the, the rest of this episode is just for y'all. It's also not going to get any better, but oh, no. <laughs> it is, 
I will say it's been a while since we've done a pandemic update. So once again, for our mm-hmm. final journal club of the season, we are going to focus in on what's been going on with everybody's least favorite reason for staying indoors. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't like, oh, you know, Netflix put on my favorite show or, you know, I've got, you know, like a favorite pet or a loved one to cuddle with or something. This is just like, ugh. But we'll still have a little fun while we do a lot of informing. So let's get started with the, the first story, the big one. And that's, of course, that vaccines are finally on the horizon. Yeah, the the preliminary trials, which were pre-phase one, so the preclinical trials in animal models like macaques were really, really good. And in fact, there were enough promising trials that went around such that there are not just one, but I think at least three or four around the world clinical vaccine trials ongoing to check the safety and efficacy of different different types of models of vaccines. I think the best part of this, Josh, is not just that we're getting vaccines against COVID-19, which is fantastic, but I love the fact that we are getting different kind of vaccine technologies in the mix, too. Yeah, some people are using Legos, some are using Duplos, some are using Minecraft, but we're all working toward the same goal of building something delightful for children and adults alike. <laughs> I like it. So let's talk a little bit about the the major contenders. Santos, you have the info on the top two or three that are closest to being released? Yep, I've got the top two. So one is from Oxford Pharmaceuticals, and that, of course, is kind of centered in, in Oxford in England. And our other one is Moderna's vaccine, which is an mRNA vaccine. Um, currently, well, it's gone. It's undergone a phase one trial that was just published July 14th, New England Journal of Medicine. So right, let's start with the Moderna one and how that works. And before we get to its actual function, I will say for those of you who are interested in vaccine research, uh, the Moderna one is actually going to be starting clinical trials in Chicago at the end of this month. And they are still looking for people to sign up. They're set to be part of a 30,000 person nationwide study led at the University of Illinois by Dr. Richard Novak. Awesome. It's a good researcher name. I like yeah. it. <laughs> it is. That's the type of researcher name you'd put as the, not the protagonist of the sci-fi movie, but the one that nobody listens to until it's too late. That yeah. guy. Damn so, it, Novak. So yeah. doctors are looking for a diverse trial group. Um, they've been recruiting first responders. They're recruiting in black and Latino neighborhoods. There are 23 different vaccines around the world being tested right now. So we'll we'll see how it goes. But this one at UIC, you can help in Chicago by looking at coronaviruspreventionnetwork.org if you want to apply to be a volunteer as part of the testing. Um, But yeah, so trials are going to start. So tell us about the Moderna vaccine, because that's the one that we're going to hear the most about probably in the U.S. as it is being developed by AstraZeneca, the pharmaceutical company based here. Oh, no, this one's the Moderna. 
Oh, I'm sorry. That's as it's being developed by Moderna, which is based in the U.S. Yep. Yeah, it's out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. So the paper that was just published in the New England Journal of Medicine, now it's open data. That was the phase one trial. That is for dose escalation and for safety purely. So this is a trial that would have broken off if the safety profile of the vaccine was no good. Never mind about efficacy. That's not what was being tested on this paper. But this was done at Kaiser Permanente Washington Health Research Institute in Seattle and at Emory in Atlanta. And the vaccine was provided by Moderna, which is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So Josh, this one's really cool. Right now in mainstream vaccine usage, we don't have a vaccine like this one yet in humans that is widely distributed and used. So this is a candidate mRNA vaccine. mRNA is messenger RNA. RNA is, uh, it's like the, uh, the little brother or something to DNA, I guess. What's a good analogy? It just wants to follow along and do all the stuff DNA does, but it mostly copies it. Yeah, and then, uh, yeah, yeah. I think little brother's a good a good well, analogy. Yeah, <laughs> like a little brother. Yeah. So uh, DNA for most. Uh, organisms that are not viruses. DNA is the backbone of all the instructions that make up what an organism is. And it gives instructions for making proteins by and large. Um, RNA, though, can exist independently in viruses. And SARS-CoV-2, which is the agent of COVID-19, is an RNA virus. So what you can actually do with the RNA from COVID is you can steal some of it to make a piece of the virus that's antigenic, meaning that it pisses off the immune system without having the rest of the virus replicate and cause havoc. So in this case, what the makers of the vaccine did is they took a lipid nanoparticle so a little tiny lipid bubble. And then um, they put the, the modified messenger RNA or mRNA inside of it. And what happens or the, the paradigm, the, the idea in this case, is that that lipid nanoparticle doesn't just float around and tick off uh, you know, and it, your immune system. It just, it, the, the way most vaccines work right now is that you have a protein component or a sugar component that'll trigger your immune system to work. In this case, it'll be taken up by a cell. The cell will indiscriminately read messenger RNA. You know, now we, we have a little bit of distinguishing stuff. You know, our, our ribosomes aren't going to just read off any damn messenger RNA. They're not complete, you know, promiscuous like that. But in this case, we've modified the messenger RNA to say, hey, this is part of your regular instructions. Please encode it. When it it's, like reads, giving, it's like giving it to a DoorDash guy, but with special instructions. Please deliver it in this specific way. Yeah, exa exactly right. Yeah. But uh, and, and it's also written in the kind of a way that a human cell will understand how to read it rather than just any random thing. So the your 
your ribosomes inside of your cells will read it and it will start to construct the protein. The protein that it's going to make is a spike protein component of SARS-CoV-2. The spike protein is the little, it's the needle which bang, you know, it's it's the part of the virus that sticks in to the cell and unlocks the cell so the virus can invade in and then replicate inside of the cell. But in this case, it's just showing off the spike. So the cell itself becomes the factory to produce these proteins. And these proteins are automatically antigenic. They're bad guys. So it makes the protein and say, hey, hey, that's a bad protein right there and attacks it. And then you form immune memory. And now when your immune system encounters that spike protein attached to a real COVID-19 virus, it will attack the spike protein, which will actually block the virus from getting into your cells. And thus the entire virus will be attenuated and then your immune system will proceed to just kill it before you have a chance to get sick. So that's the mechanism behind this, that rather than just feeding the antigen to the body, you're feeding the instructions to make the antigen to the body. Your own body makes the antigen, neutralizes it, and then gets ready for a fight with the real virus. Damn. So you have the delivery guy bring over the Lego box with the instructions. With the instruction. Well, no, no, I'll tell you this. You already have your own Legos. So he's just bringing you the, the instructions for the Legos. Oh, I'm part of the maker community. I you like are it. part. You're part of the maker community. You got your own amino acids. You don't need no other amino acids. So it, <laughs> it's a new set of instructions to build something with our existing pieces. But if we hop across the pond, how does the Oxford vaccine work? The Oxford vaccine is a little bit more of a classical type of vaccine. It really just is the spike protein of COVID-19 or of SARS-CoV-2 presented to the immune system. In this particular case, uh, Josh, you're going to love this. It's attached to a attenuated monkey virus, uh, an adenovirus vectored vaccine, and it is a chimpanzee, ch, ch, adenovirus, AD, from Oxford Pharmaceuticals, OX. So the, the particle is called Chadox. It would be a Chad, wouldn't it? <laughs> now, now I'm just picturing a monkey in a polo shirt acting all <laughs> smug because he doesn't have a virus. Yeah. <laughs> Can you have a dude bro monkey? You can almost certainly if you had a dude bro monkey or in this case, a dude bro chimp, then it would be raised by a dude bro human. So rather than being just a chill, cool chimp in the wild, it would be dude bro dude by a, a bad human. I feel like chimps are already dude broed like in the wild. Well, uh, they're definitely like ripped and tanked and stuff. The, the chimpanzee, if you were to take the fur away, looks like the buffest, you know, human that you'd ever see, like way tanked up. They're all like little Dwayne the Rock Johnsons walking around. Home listeners, do yourself a favor and Google image search hairless chimp. <laughs> or, I'm sorry, chimp with alopecia. Chimp with alopecia and just take a look at that bicep. 
Yeah, and you will never mess with a chimp ever again. That's that's Chad. That's Chad right there from <laughs> Chadox. I mean, I'm assuming that there are people out there who want to mess with chimps. I'm going off on a tangent. Please feel free right. to stop me so, anytime. Okay, so, <laughs> so Chadox, what's, yeah. what's our monkey adenovirus or chimpanzee the, adenovirus do? Yeah, so the chimpanzee adenovirus is your vector. This is your packaging. And the reason that they're using this is because they have previous experience attaching the spike protein from a different coronavirus from last decade, the MERS coronavirus or Middle East Respiratory Syndrome virus, a kind of a semi-related to our current COVID-19 virus, but not super closely, but looks close enough that when they had trialed the MERS virus spike protein attached to the Chadox-1 particle, it had provided good protection. So they said, hey, let's take the same particle, but instead of attaching the MERS spike protein, we'll take the COVID-19 spike protein and bam, slap it on there. And you know, we'll try it out in macaques, which is one of the very well-studied respiratory virus animal models uh, for analogy to humans. That worked out well. And so now safety profile was checked out in a phase one trial uh, over in the uh, the UK. And it turned out pretty well. It, it had a very acceptable safety profile. And they were able to try out doses. They saw boosting, you know, if you gave a second dose and, you know, pretty good uh, antibody type of responses. So the next step, Josh, is to examine efficacy. So what is efficacy? Yeah, efficacy is actually an equation. You can actually write it out. Ugh, um, math. <laughs> all right. I won't do the actual math. But essentially, you want to figure out the number of people who are vulnerable to getting a vaccine. And you want to see how many people were vaccinated. So if you take the the number of people, uh, the, the denominator is going to be your total number of vaccinated people. And then on the top, you see the number of cases that you get. So that number of cases over the number of vaccinated people shows you your vaccine efficacy. Um, and you do have to do a little bit of manipulation to look at the prevalence of disease. If you're not doing what is actually called a post-vaccination challenge, where you actually, in, in some vaccine trials, you can try this, actually give the pathogen to the patient in order to examine whether it directly protects them in a controlled type of environment. But in this case, what you probably have to do is vaccinate a person and then let them go out and live their lives and see how many of the people who you vaccinated get sick from the circulating pathogen. Now, do we have any data at this point on these early trials, how long the vaccine confers protection? I'm not so sure. What did you find out? I couldn't find a ton. Uh, there's a lot of competing or conflicting data. It looks as though an infection itself naturally developed antibodies mm -hmm. seem to confer at least several months, uh, but right. it does not appear to be a lifetime. So a vaccine will likely be required with a booster. So uh, my suspicion is 
these vaccines, when all is said and done with the efficacy, will look a lot more like your standard pneumococcal vaccines, which have given once every so many number of years, Mm -hmm. rather than a flu vaccine, which is given yearly. So I don't think it'll be a once in a lifetime shot. I think there this will be something that we'll need to get with some regularity. But I don't think it will require a yearly re-up. No, and you're absolutely right about that. The yearly re-up for flu is a little bit different in that that is specifically because flu mutates to a strong enough degree that the previous year's flu vaccine is not as protective as it needs to be for the next year. So 2018-2019 flu vaccine looks different physically the the actual viral particles that you're injecting in are slightly different from the the uh, viral particles or the the pieces of the viral particles rather that you're going to inject as a vaccine for 2019-2020 in this case we're not expecting that much shift but you're absolutely right that our immunity And we do have data from the first SARS all the way back in 2009 and from MERS to examine those folks to see how long do they have this virus, the antibodies circulating around, how long are they protected? And it it seems like in those, uh, in SARS for short, that the outside distance for how long they were protected was a couple of years. And of course, we're not going to know until we live with this particular pandemic. I hope not, but it, until it's been a couple of years after this pandemic. Kind of thing. Now, the other nice thing is that where we did mention flu, the flu virus tends to mutate every year to become that more effective. Mm-hmm. The COVID-19 has already kind of hit its its peak. It is the most effective virus it can be. It is out there living its best life. <laughs> and that means yeah. that and that means that any mutations that it does develop from year to year are likely to only make it less harmful or less effective because it already spreads very well and viruses tend to develop mutations or evolve to improve their own efficacy. So any mutations that happen are only going to make this disease easier to deal with rather than harder to treat at this point. Yeah, I know that sounds really strange, but I'll I'll give a good analogy. Ebola kills extremely efficiently, but the problem is with that efficient type of killing, if people space out just a little bit, and they leave bodies alone and things, the epidemic burns out really quickly because there's nowhere it can go really after killing a specific population. But with coronaviruses and respiratory viruses in general, if they want to quote unquote survive long term, that means that the best long lived viruses in our evolutionary history are going to propagate and show no symptoms or very minimal symptoms while the progeny are able to replicate and replicate and then pass on from person to person. You don't want to kill the host because then you can't circulate. Right. You don't want to burn down your own house. You need somewhere to live, virus. So <laughs> exactly. So keep that it, in mind. Yeah. So the ones that have stuck with us, Josh, for the longest time are those nuisance viruses, common colds. You can't get rid of them ever, but they're also not 
kind of enough of a problem to bother. Yeah. Now, the most important question is, how many bottles of crab blood do you think each of these vaccines required? Okay. That wasn't even a kind of an attempt at a segue, you psychopath. What's the matter with you? (laughs) I'm sorry. Was I making you crabby? And speaking Uh, of crabs. (laughs) Why? Just say we're talking about the next thing now. These are intelligent people that we're talking to. (laughs) Sometimes I just like to shoehorn a trivia bit in there. And it's not necessarily a journal story, but it is related. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, fine, Mr. I hate even shitty segues. (laughs) The race for a coronavirus vaccine, Santosh, runs on horseshoe crab blood. It it does. And this is going to get just a little dark. Generally speaking, they they are okay after we grab some of their blood. Their blue, 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 blue blood. Their their actual blue blood. Uh, So, during the annual blood harvest... Which is a thing that humans do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yep. There's nothing else to call it. (laughs) So during during the yearly blood harvest, a bunch of pharmaceutical companies will go out and capture and unfortunately sometimes kill up to even 50,000 of these horseshoe crabs. Uh, because their their specifically blue blood has a special compound that'll clot in the presence of bacterial endotoxins. The, they harvest way more than fifty thousand crabs. About fifty thousand crabs die in the process. Santosh, you can't have a blood harvest without <laughs> killing a few crabs. <laughs> That's not a saying. <laughs> Okay. Uh, tomato potato. <laughs> okay, okay. So essentially the the horseshoe crab blood is very special because it has this compound that can di- detect endotoxins or contaminants which is a great way to test for purity when you're creating a vaccine. Now mm-hmm. obviously 50,000 dead crabs in a blood harvest has made a few groups of animal rights conservationists and even a few companies unhappy so they've been pushing for synthetic alternatives Mm -hmm. however in the midst of the pandemic even though they were developing a synthetic alternative known as recombinant factor c the u.s has said we already know that horseshoe crab blood is effective and that's got to take precedence so they are not allowing the use of synthetic alternatives during this time so they've put the kibosh on saving crabs Uh, because we do need their blood to test out all these vaccines, and we simply haven't done enough testing on the synthetic alternatives. Yeah, this is going to take a while, because as with many, many things, it's really hard to replicate something that nature has evolved to do over billions of years. Just to let you guys know, it's about... 500,000 crabs that are harvested and about 10% of those so 50,000 pass away poor things but the, the rest they- are the rest are totally set free to be predated on by other nor- natural predators and stuff you can't have a bl- yearly blood harvest without making sure you release enough back into the wild to harvest the next year 
Yeah, it's true. It's true. Because unfortunately, because it is a blood product, it only lasts for a limited amount of time in order to test our medical products, actually, to make sure they're safe to give to humans. So yeah, yeah, there, there's a good thing we're doing for humans. But yes, oh, wonderful pharmacy companies, if you're able to come up with a good alternative. It'd be nice just so well, we don't okay. have to report on this. I want to emphasize pharmacy yeah. companies have come up with an alternative. Eli Lilly is starting a COVID-19 antibody test in humans that does use the synthetic RFC for purity testing, but they oh, nice. cannot but they cannot use that widely because right. the Food and Drug Administration has said you know, we need a certain amount of tests that show this synthetic compound is as good or better. And they simply don't have the time and resources to do that. So while they are using it for some testing, uh, it's mostly done out of places where we can't get enough crab blood. So this is going to be our backup. <laughs> so we'll we'll see how this develops. But things are getting better for those crabs. They will They will not have to be harvested quite as heavily and when we can make the switch to more synthetic crab blood up to a hundred thousand crabs or a full fifth of the blood harvest which is so much fun to say could be saved (laughs) in the future i'm glad for this this is in the same kind of context as some of my colleagues in the animal research world who are working very hard to replace the use of models such as mice and ferrets and pigs and cats, in my case, in toxoplasma, but to use a organ on a chip or other system like this where we don't have to resort to harming these animals to learn something new about the pathogens. So yes, we are very, very heavily thinking about animal alternatives on a global scale, but it's just going to take some time because just like Dr. Josh said, the way that the tried and true method works is just so good that it will take a lot of evidence to show that the substitute is an appropriate substitute. So we've now talked about vaccines and a fun little bit of trivia for how they're developed. That was Mm -hmm. not as shoehorned in as you thought. No, no, it it made a lot of sense. It's just, uh, I, I don't know. I always get a little sad with the blood harvest. So, really, I, I look forward to the yearly oh, blood harvest. No. <laughs> Stop it. Stop it. Like- right, moving on to the next story. So, we've talked about vaccines, which will be our long-term solution. Creepy. <laughs> and right now, we do have a couple treatments for active infections that include such things as transfusing blood from people who have already beaten co- corona or the remdesivir. But now another study or two clinical trials are looking into a third possible option to treat COVID-19 using low-dose radiation. Now, what's really interesting about this is that this was kind of a forgotten therapeutic approach from you know the early 20th century, where when x-rays were first discovered, they 
basically treated pneumonias by just x-raying the daylights out of them. Yeah. Yeah. The wonderful thing about radiation. No. Oh. This, this be tough thing about radiation. ends that sentence. Yeah. <laughs> radiation kills quite indiscriminately. If you have DNA, you know, bacteria have DNA, we have DNA, then ionizing radiation rips that DNA apart, thus rendering the cell either unable to divide or the DNA is so heavily mutated that it's just crappy and the host cell for the DNA is just completely wrecked and and unable to function. So yeah, radiation works beautifully. It's why it does still have a, a role in cancer, because if you target the beam where you need it to go for a tumor, you can zap the cells in that area. The problem is always, always, you're going to cause collateral damage. So the way around that is to use very specific targeted doses of radiation in small areas. So when we're talking low dose radiation, it's more than you're going to get going through an airport or Mm -hmm. more than you would have gotten going through an airport in the before times. (laughs) Well, I'm really going heavy on the dystopia today. The before times, the blood harvest. The blood harvest. (laughs) Uh, This is very, you're indulging your steampunk self. Enjoy. In the low-dose radiation, more than an airport, less than a CAT scan sometimes. And Mm -hmm. in fact, there's a radiation oncologist who is running two different trials on the use of low-dose radiation. And he is from Ohio State University. It is the chair of the Department of Radiation Oncology, Arnab Chakravarti. And these are phase two clinical trials. Remind me again, Santosh, what's the difference between phase one and phase two? Right. Phase one is done to examine the safety profile of an intervention, in this case, the safety of the radiation, versus usually a control. The phase two is to look at the efficacy or how good at it how good the modality is or the treatment at treating the disease that you're trying to treat. What we know from the early days of studying COVID-19 is that it seems to induce an inflammatory cytokine storm. And low-dose radiation can be really good at stopping that inflammation in its tracks. Now, if you have a full-blown cytokine storm, it's not going to do much for it. But if you can get it while it's ramping up, you could have a real effect. So there's two different studies. The first trial called PREVENT, which already gives me so much respect for Dr. Chakravarti because finally he's naming something. So the PREVENT trial is for COVID-19 patients with pneumonia who are having severe respiratory distress but don't need to be intubated yet. Whereas the second trial called Vented is for patients who are critically ill and on a ventilator. So he's studying irradiating the lungs with a single low-dose beam of x-rays a little bit higher than that used to treat cancer Mm -hmm. um, or that used to treat cancers, but only one dose. And he's going to shoot both people who 
have COVID but haven't been intubated and people who have COVID severe enough that they have been and see what it does for this inflammatory buildup and storm. Yeah, this is this is kind of an interesting approach. The viral infection in COVID-19 is just kind of phase one. You know, you have a fever, you have cough. A lot of the time you have a little bit of trouble breathing, but not a lot yet. And then around day eight of infection, for the people who are unfortunate enough to get into this respiratory distress-like picture, it's not the virus that does the subsequent damage as far as we can tell. It seems to be our own immune system going haywire. So, Josh, this is really interesting because we have other treatment modalities right now that attack the same kinds of thing that Dr. Chakravarti is going after. So we have, for instance, IL-6 or interleukin-6 inhibitors, which stop the immune or inflammatory cascade from continuing on to wreck our lung tissues and let us kind of cool off and get better. In this case, the radiation is going to target the resident inflammatory cells in the lungs and the infiltrating inflammatory cells to zap them and, well, frankly, kill them so that they stop attacking the lung tissue. The reason it works so well is because blood cells turn over or replicate very, very quickly, which means they're more vulnerable to radiation damage, whereas the resident lung cells do not replicate very quickly, so they're a little bit more resistant to damage from radiation. If you don't replicate as quickly, you don't use your DNA as much in order to replicate, so small errors that happen because of radiation don't affect that tissue as much really. So we're both attacking the same kind of arms by hitting the monocytes and the, the, the other inflammatory cells that are coming along. It's just that on one side, you can do it with a monoclonal antibody against IL-6. That's tocilizumab. In this case, you zap the cells that you don't like with a beam of radiation. Pew, I, pew. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And the interesting implication here, Josh, is if this works well, this might be, just like you said, a forgotten modality that almost exclusively is used in cancer, but could be potentially used in other acute inflammatory syndromes because this disease, uh, the COVID-19, you know, ARDS-like picture, mimics a lot of other respiratory and other auto-inflammatory diseases that pop up associated with infection that we haven't had good solutions to yet so far. Yeah. Now, this can potentially be a little bit of a double-edged sword because we don't know what the effect will be just yet, which is why he's doing the study. It could mean, you know, we could see some systemic effects from irradiating. Even though you're irradiating in a small area, some of that ir- irradiated material does get out into the body and can cause other problems. Mm-hmm. And it's a very small window. This this cytokine storm happens in the severe COVID-19 cases, which progress very fast and deteriorate in under two weeks. So you have a very narrow window when, even if this works perfectly, when you can administer it. Because if you've missed that, if they've already been through all the inflammatory 
process, then this won't do anything. Mm-hmm. Aside from, you know, irradiating you, <laughs> which carries its own set of side effects, yeah. not which don't include superpowers. The, yeah, I know. Never, never, ever. Unless your superpower is growing more cancer cells. The This is a kind of a difficult thing for us to go through because, you know, radiation is not a modality that's been used for a long time, either in infection or inflammation. So I think there was understandably a lot of skepticism here, but the way that this is being conducted as a small trial, looking for safety profile first, then looking at efficacy, taking the stepwise type of modality is a very, very good thing. Even in this very short amount of time, as an example, we checked out hydroxychloroquine as a possible therapy for COVID-19. And we took the steps to say, what's the safety? What's the efficacy? And we found out pretty quickly, Josh, like even in a few months, that this isn't a good option. And we struck it from our list of medications that should be administered for you know acute COVID patients who are coming into the ICU. So the the model works really well in terms of how we study this. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see where this goes, um, especially as there are a lot of long-term effects that are affected by this inflammatory or sometimes even the vasculitis, where we're seeing all those clots and then the clots leading to strokes or later heart disease or dementia. There's a lot going on from a neuropsychiatric standpoint that we're just starting to see evolve Mm -hmm. and will probably be the subject of future journal clubs. But shifting to the next story, another big topic in the news has been when to go back to school and Mm -hmm. what's the safety profile for kids and adults. And have you heard about the pandemic pods that are being created? Yeah, I don't think this is going to pan out. <laughs> you can't you can't do this with school-age children. Keep them in a little like separate container, so, that kind of a thing. They're kids are just going to riot run into each other. It's just it's kids. Anyone who has kids can probably tell you they're most likely to just go ahead, lick their hands, and run at each other screaming, Corona! Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, when, when kids are super, super ill in terms of, okay, you're not bad enough to go to the hospital, but you know we got to keep you away from other people who could get really sick in your classroom, then there's no other solution than you're staying home. Because you can't, you can't expect to sequester nine-year-old, ten-year-old, those that type of school-age children away from each other. So let's talk a little bit about why children seem to avoid the worst coronavirus complications, and also what we can redefine a child as. Because Santosh, I believe uh, you found some reports, and I've also seen that. While kids under 10 seem to be less susceptible, teenagers can spread it at the same rate as adults, which means once you hit your teens, we can't really consider you a child from the coronavirus. <laughs> no, yeah, it doesn't seem to care. What a mitzvah! <laughs> it doesn't seem to care about our weird human demarcations. This virus doesn't. 
This was a study out of South Korea. Wait, 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 wait. I've got one for this. It's a SARS mitzvah. No, boy. Very good. Okay, carry on. <laughs> oh, I will. <laughs> <laughs> the this was a beautiful study down out of South Korea where they had large groups of circulating uh, coronavirus before they were able to get on top of it. And what they looked at was true contact tracing. So they said, I'm going to take an index case of a person of you know whatever age, and I'm going to follow the people who they contact within their household and outside of their household and find out how many of those contacts that the index case that we're going to follow is going to infect. So how many of those people get sick? It's not perfect, right? Because you can't necessarily say that a contact is going to get sick directly from the index patient, but there are very good statistical methods to kind of parse this out. So essentially, Josh, what they did in order to study this by age group is they broke it down kind of by decade. So they said zero to nine, uh, you know, uh, 9 to 19, sorry, 0 to 9, 10 to 19, 20 to 29, et cetera, et cetera. And what we found out was that, of course, the little kids had very, very few contacts, right? Because like a four-month-old is only going to be really in contact with like two or three people. Unless you're like boss baby, your Rolodex just isn't that filled. <laughs> Not all babies can be Alec Baldwin baby. Yes. So it's very tough to pull off. So <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. So when, when they looked at that zero to nine age group, then those children, what we're looking at is how efficiently they transmit. So what percentage of those contacts turned positive for COVID down the road? And they were transmitting, you know, at a, kind of a lame rate. But when we got immediately to the 10 to 19 age range, they were transmitting coronavirus at about 18%. So close to 20% of like one in five of the people who they met especially in the household, got sick from coronavirus and contracted it. And then, interestingly, when you stepped up to the, the 20 to 29 age group, you had a drop-off. And it didn't come back up to around 17 18% until you got a little bit older in age. So it looks like those school-age children are very efficient transmitters. That doesn't necessarily mean everyone gets really, really sick or ends up in the hospital. It means that within households, if you have a school-age child, they are able to very effectively acquire COVID-19 and spread it into the household. One of the reasons that some of the younger age children in that 10 and under group may not seem to have as severe effects could lead back to something we discussed in a previous journal club about how the coronavirus seems to really zero in on endothelial cells, which line our arteries. Mm -hmm. And that could be why we're seeing so many clots. Now, I know the first time I brought this up, Santosh, you poo-pooed the idea a little, <laughs> saying that you were simply not convinced by the current body of evidence 
that this was a disease of blood vessels as well as a respiratory disease. Right, because there, there are two components, right? There's the virus attacking, and then there's our own immune system going haywire, which is also causing our clotting cascade to go sideways. Now, kids have just a much better condition of endothelium than adults. You know, when you're born, you're set up perfectly and everything just deteriorates with age. So when you see even teenagers with the coronavirus, they're very rarely are getting things like strokes or blood clots. They're suffering much more from exclusively the respiratory effects. But once you get up into middle age and elderly, you're seeing much more clotting, strokes, you know, those kinds of ones. So it may be, again, the reason that kids are still able to spread but more protected could simply be that the virus uh, can't, you know, their immune systems are more robust from a respiratory standpoint and their vessels are just healthier. So I'm taking this as another point in favor of my, this is a partial vasculitis theory. It's, uh, I have no doubt that there's vasculitis involved when we talk about COVID-19. I The only place I am pushing back is whether the vasculitis is caused directly by the virus or by the immune system. I do agree, Josh, that there is mounting evidence to, just like you're talking about, to have the virus actually invading endothelial cells other than lung parenchyma, respiratory parenchyma. So I'm, I'm not shutting it down altogether. I, I think it's a good thing to pay attention to. And the debate continues. <laughs> um, so we will kind of wrap up with one last story right now. It's hard to have a travel medicine show when Americans are simply not allowed to travel anywhere as we are barred from every country uh, except, except Croatia. <laughs> and maybe, so, maybe is, one or two islands. You know, if we have to take a good long look in the mirror when other countries, especially other advanced industrialized countries, take a look at us and be like, ah, oh, we don't, we'd rather not, you know? And then they're like, but you're letting in people from everywhere else. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> so Ooh, those travel bans hurt, don't they? Yeah, it doesn't, so, doesn't feel good. So listen to this in an ultimate flex Germany has taken a look at us. I I don't know if this was their actual rationale, Mm -hmm. but Germany, which has been one of the countries that's really kept a good handle on coronavirus and kept it from spreading. Even in the second wave, yeah. Took a look at, you know, countries where we can't be allowed to go to the beach or to indoor bars because we're simply not practicing social distancing and things like that. (laughs) And German scientists are throwing an experiment to test how COVID-19 spreads. They're looking for volunteers to attend a COVID concert. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is, well, go ahead. It's going to be very interesting. So the project is scheduled, is called Restart 19. And it's going to be at the Leipzig Concert Hall, August 22nd. And they're going to take 4,200 healthy people and have them attend a live concert by a German singer. And all you need to do is to go is prove, one, you're not American, and that you're between the ages of 18 and 50, 
and currently negative for COVID-19. And they're going to send a bunch of these people to this huge outdoor event and then trace them to see how the virus spreads. So they're going to attempt to create a ghost map in real time. (laughs) I think this is super, super cool. Everyone who signs up, and by the way, this is part of the advantage of having a fully socialized medical system in that everyone's just kind of registered somewhere if you're a citizen of Germany in the healthcare system so that you don't have to worry about what hospital you go to or what doctor you go to. Everyone can find your record if they're a doctor or a nurse. But yeah, you can trace contacts really, really well. If someone gets sick, you can say, who are you sitting next to? Who else is vulnerable, et cetera, et cetera, and say, hey, you need to protect yourself or quarantine. And people can still go out and have fun. So let's go into some of the methods that they're going to use. So as I said, you have to be between the ages of 18 and 50 and test negative to COVID-19 before you're allowed to enter the concert venue. Then if everything goes according to plan, all the volunteers will be tested again at the entry to the concert hall. So you have to be negative before you can sign up. Mm -hmm. Then when you arrive, they're going to test you. You'll be instructed to wear a mask and enter the venue. So it's not a free for all. You're still going to have to, you know, take certain precautions and everyone at the concert is going to have a wearable device like a Fitbit that will transmit data every five to 10 seconds, including the proximity to other devices so they can see how effective the safe six is and your location within the venue, as well as bottles of fluorescent hand sanitizer and disinfectant that'll allow researchers to see what surfaces have been touched and therefore what are the particularly dangerous surfaces that are at risk of spreading. So we're talking, you know, a full NCIS, blacklight sanitizer, masks with Fitbits. You know, this this would be, if anything, the one positive episode of Black Mirror and uh, Ed administrative healthcare. I I think it's beautiful. There is a mutual trade-off that's being understood in kind of the societal contract here. I'm going to give over a little bit of my privacy, essentially, right? I'm going to give over, you know, health information and allow you to track me. In exchange, I'm going to go have fun. I'm going to enjoy myself, release some stress, But on the flip side, I'm helping protect the people around me. I'm helping to donate data to an epidemiological effort. And if you have testing in place, if you have surveillance in place like this, and, you know, I, I have to admit, you're giving up a little bit. You're giving up a little bit of your information and you're showing people exactly where you are, especially a, a government or a healthcare program. But the exchange really is that, you know, for, what'd you say, 42,000 people can really benefit. Uh, 4,200. Oh, 4, I'm sorry. 4,200 people can really benefit and enjoy themselves. And in a safe environment and it well maybe that's and, and that's what they determine. find out you can you can pilot oh, it this way did i mention there's a fog yeah. machine <laughs> and and you get to have a fun with a fog machine 
No, 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 no. There's a scientific okay. reason because when the when the performer is live on stage, there's going to be a fog machine running to look at the possibility of the virus spreading oh, through aerosols. They can chart the airflow. <laughs> they can chart the airflow by looking at the currents using the fog. That's really beautiful. I like that. No, no. I I think this is awesome. I'll. I'll give a perfect scenario, Josh. Uh, let's let's talk about an absolutely perfect scenario. If you were able to take a populace, any populace that you wanted to, and say, guys, I'm really, really sorry, but I'm going to seal off the borders so you know we don't leave or let anybody in. And then we're just going to sit down, sit tight for four weeks for one month and there'll be a hospital there and everything else in the middle of this populace but we're all just absolutely going to sit tight we're not going to go out we'll provide food water everything we need this virus would just burn out it cannot transmit so efficiently that it can jump across meters and kilometers so that's that's kind of an ideal thing that you can you know, just have everybody kind of sit absolutely still and let the thing burn out. Unfortunately, we're human beings. We're not going to be able to do this. But if, you know, in a reasonable type of thing, like what you're describing, Josh, is that we can space out, wear our masks, get together, but not in huge things. And then most importantly, track where we've gone and who gets sick and find contacts and trace that way, then we really can. We can beat this thing. It'll take longer than if we just lock ourselves up, but we can we can do it. So the closest so that's that's Germany's massive yeah. flex. Oh, you like concerts? <laughs> <laughs> they are it's it's heartwarming. They're having fun, they're having a really wonderful time, but they're being safe. It's really, really good. Whereas and, and we're not gonna cover it this time, but the closest we have in America for that sort of study, aside from, you know, people just blatantly disregarding everything that we've told them to do is the NBA bubble, which even though it's been broken several times, does seem to be working and keeping the players, most of the players from getting it. So <laughs> I just, and, and by the way, they already did this joke on wait, wait, don't tell me, but that's one of the weirdest things in the world is like, cause they're being put up at like Walt Disney world hotels. <laughs> so this concept of like dude i'm trying to break out of disney can you help <laughs> uh i think that's just awesome i mean it is it is a mouse oh, or a people he said it <laughs> it's or a people trap designed by it a is. mouse <laughs> so that is it for this week and everything we currently know about the pandemic. Oh, I I want to do, Josh, is it cool for me to do a quick pediatric shout out? Go for it. So I I want to let everybody know um, cases of MIS-C, which is the multi-system inflammatory syndrome uh, with temporal connection to coronavirus. So you call it MIS-C. Overseas, it's called PIMS, P-I-M-S. But I, I want to let everybody out there know the rates of Miss C or PIMS are still exceedingly low. 
the risk for a child getting this type of thing, especially if they have asymptomatic coronavirus infection, is still exceedingly low. It's still a very rare disease. And everyone out there who is looking to, hey, I got to get my kids to school and all this kind of a thing, just please be a little bit patient. We're learning a little bit more every week, I would say. But right now, it looks like our school-age kids are transmitting covid a little too efficiently for them to get together in large groups and safely attend school the way we used to in the long, long ago in the before time. <laughs> so it's it's going to take a while, but your kids as themselves, even though they're transmitting coronavirus, they're going to be all right by and large, either with Miss C or, or without. So as far as that goes, everyone who's got kids out there and listening, take a breath. You, you guys are okay. Now, if you'll pardon me, I must get ready to go off to the annual blood harvest. <laughs> You're not going to the blood harvest. That's it for this end week. Up on a government as, list. <laughs> as always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and many other friends of the show. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to papers and sources used to research this week's episode. Until next time, and until we're able to leave the country and our homes again, <laughs> Happy staying at home. Yeah. (laughs) Wash Wash your hands, wear a mask, and if you have the opportunity to do so, Yeah, keep each other safe, guys. We're going to get through this. Keep each other safe. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.